be wrapping up uh, this Red Letter series. Um, and uh, if you missed any of it, uh, all the messages are uh, online or you can get them uh, on the app through your phone and uh, you can kind of catch up on it. Um, I am bummed to see it coming to an end, to be honest with you. I've really enjoyed studying these words uh, of Jesus, just uh, life-changing words. And so it's been good for our church to go through this. Uh, next Sunday, I'm excited to start next Sunday, though, too. It's uh, Next Sunday, we're going to start a, a series, little three-week series, 7th, 14th, and 21st, um, uh, called The Sounds of Easter, that we often think about Easter as a very visual holiday, and it is. There's always been a lot of visuals uh, about Easter. But today, we want to just kind of, this month, we want to pause and think about what Easter sounded like. What were some of those sounds that were prevalent in the Easter story? And so we'll start that next week and uh, go work our way into Easter. So um, let's pray, and uh, then we'll get started. All right? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, we thank you for uh, these red letters. And uh, they have uh, been life-changing and um, life-impacting. And so as we uh, kind of uh, close up this sermon series, I uh, pray that we would receive uh, this lesson from you from Matthew 7 and that we'd hear your words and put them into practice. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the things that uh, almost every person that I know uh, likes to kind of fantasize about is winning lottery. Uh, even people that don't play, you know, because they'll be talking about what they would do with everyone. They're like, well, I guess I'd have to buy a ticket first. And that is typically how that works. You have to buy a ticket. But we have had some extraordinarily high lotteries the last couple of years. Lotteries uh, that get, have gotten close to like a billion dollars, right? Or over a billion dollars. And uh, just amazing thing to, to, to win. I mean, think about what you would uh, do with that kind of money um, other than obviously double tithing to your church. I mean, that's a no brainer. But um, outside of that, what would you do? You know, and a lot of people like to think about that and a lot of people like to fantasize about that. And I find that as interested as we are in the lottery in that way, we're also kind of interested in these crash and burn stories for some reason. I found this uh, story in the newspaper. It said, according to sources, while Deborah McHenry, 56, of Dearborn, Missouri, and Chris Linden, 32, of Fountain Hills, Arizona, were elated upon winning the record-breaking lottery prize, both blew, uh, quickly blew through the roughly 192 million, just let that sink in for a minute, 192 million each, that they each received, spending on various failed business investments, reckless gambling habits, and costly, uh, costly divorce proceedings. They just don't tell you how quickly the money goes, said McHenry, who since last night was reportedly had received a nine-figure check. She purchased a 300,000 luxury vehicle, separated from her husband, spent more than 14 million on a custody battle, and had undergone eight cosmetic surgeries. My family and I were thrilled when we saw the winning numbers on TV. An hour later, I was being sued by my parents, uh, defaulted on the payments for my Manhattan townhouse. I lost everything. And that's somebody that has won <clears throat> $192 million. <laughs> Right? What, what is the story with that? I mean, on, on one real kind of practical level, I think some of it has to do with uh, people that maybe aren't used to managing very much money win the lottery, and all of a sudden they don't know how to manage it, they don't know how to save it, they don't know what to do with that kind of money. I think on one level that's true, um, and several bad investments later, a couple homes, cars, you know, some custody stuff, and all of a sudden it's gone. I think on one level that's true, but on a deeper level, kind of spiritually, um, I think we don't understand where life is found. 
Open your Bibles to Matthew 7. We're going to be in Matthew 7. And we, uh, in a faulty kind of mindset, we think a boat is going to lead us to life. Or, or a car is going to lead us to life, or it's going to be found in traveling. And all of those things are fine. They really are. But they're not going to lead us to life. They can't. A thing never can. So I want to kind of, I, I don't always do this, but I want to just, I'm going to put it on the screen here in just a minute. I know we got some kids in here, but in case you fall asleep, in case you tune out, right, in case you, this sermon just doesn't interest you or whatever, I want you to know the purpose of today's message. Next slide. Jesus is leading us to life. You may go to sleep now, all right? So, now, that Jesus is leading us to life. And so, as we end the series, this is the point uh, that Jesus wants to make, one of the final points that he makes in this message, and here's how he says it. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. Jesus is leading us to life, and only a few find it. So the word for life in this text is the word zoe. And it's different than some of the other usages of the word life uh, in the New Testament. The other usages of the word life is the, word, the Greek word bios. And uh, the Greek word bios is where we get our English word biography. And so it asks the, bios asks you the question, if someone were writing a biography of your life, what would they say that you did with your life? Bios is all about what we did, and, and that's a good description of it, that someone might write about my life, that uh, they might say, Steve was a preacher. I'm always kind of blown away by, uh, like, uh, Sam's kind of oblivious to all this, but that Sam sometimes like even tunes into what I do for a living. We were driving to church this morning, and he said, you know what you need, Daddy? I said, what do I need? He said, you need a fancier car, and written on the side of the car, it would say, the preacher. I said, you're right, I do need that, right? No, no, right? And, and so th 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 that's what somebody would write about me is I'm a preacher, I have a family, um, love Michigan State. I'm wearing that today for obvious reasons, but um, I like to travel, right? They would write those sorts of things about me. About you, they would maybe talk about your career and your family, something extraordinary that you, extraordinary that you accomplished. That's bios, it is biography, it's what you did. That's not the word that Jesus uses here. The word Jesus uses here is zoe, and it is the spirit part of you, right? Bios is what you did. Zoe is what is inside of you that drove how you lived, right? What, what is going on inside of you that made you the person that you are, that defines you, that, that inside spiritual part of us? Here's the Greek definition of it. The highest and best which Christ is and which he gave to his saints that is the definition of this word. It is that the idea that Jesus brings us life, that in response to who Jesus is, this is how I live, right? In response to who Jesus is, this is how I live. It is the inside part of me. It is the inside part of you, the spiritual part of you that drives your life. It is the engine of your life. That is Zoe. Right, and uh, it's a very popular word in the New Testament. It's used a lot of, of times because Jesus is leading us to life. In response to who he is, this is how I live. But there is one author in the New Testament who used it far and away more than any other author, and it is the author John. 
right? Uh, John wrote one of the gospels, and it's interesting. When you study Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three books of, uh, that tell the story of Jesus's life, there's obviously both bios and Zoe in, in all of the gospels, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tend to be more bios about Jesus. They tend to be biographies. This is what Jesus did. This is the miracle he did. This is the teaching he engaged in. This is the biography of Jesus. But then the book of John changes. The tone of it changes. That it's not just this is what Jesus did, it's this is who Jesus was and is. This is how we respond to Jesus. So let me give you one example, all right? I could give you a whole bunch of them, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you one from the book of John that Jesus has just performed this miracle. He's fed 5,000 people. That's in Jesus' biography, right? And, and, during, and, and after the uh, miracle, Jesus does some teaching. And here's what he says. I am the bread of life, Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. This is who Jesus is, right? He is bread. He is life. This is the inside part of him. Jesus is life. And then Jesus, the teaching goes on. So, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Jesus is life, so in response, I don't work for food that spoils, right? I, I, I work for the bread of life. I, I live the way that Jesus tells me to live. Who Jesus is, how I live. And like I said, there are examples outside of John, all throughout the New Testament, that you might say about someone, oh, they are inside of them. They are so graceful. And we as Christians would say, yes, they got that from Jesus. That is who Jesus is, so this is how I live. Or you might say about someone, man, they always tell the truth. That's who they are on the inside. They are a truthful person. And we as Christians would say, yes, Jesus is the word become flesh. He is the truth, so they receive that from him. This is who Jesus is. This is how I live. Um, as as a, a Christian, you might, you might say, man, that person is so loving. And we say, yeah. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That's who Jesus is. He was and is love. And so that's how I respond to him. So Jesus is leading us to life. And, and Jesus says, now here's the risk. The sermon's going to continue. And he says, if Jesus is leading us to life and we want to follow him to life, then there is a risk. And here's what it is. So Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly there are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from, from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So Jesus' advice is, I am leading you to life. It is a narrow road, but I am leading you to life. A lot of other people are on the wide path. This is the narrow path. It is the, about as narrow as Jesus. He says, I am leading you to life. So because of that, watch out for false prophets. And when we tend to think about false prophets, I think we tend to think about David Koresh, Jim Jones, cult leaders. And that's, this isn't a sermon advocating that. that that's certainly a, a type of false prophet. Um, but in those cults, typically, You've got a few dozen or uh, um, a few hundred people affected, but remember what Jesus said earlier, wide is the path that leads away from life. So I think what Jesus is describing here is popular cultural mindsets that are advocated by someone in the culture, popular uh, cultural uh, mindsets that are leading us away from Jesus. 
the Jesus way. They are not leading us to life. And they look different for every culture. Even in our culture, over the last hundred years or so, these kind of cultural mindsets that are not leading us to life, these cultural mindsets have, have, have changed, right? Um, years and years ago, one of the cultural mindsets that our culture fully embraced was this, life comes from work, right? Life comes from work and life comes from money. Right? That was a cultural mindset that generations believed in, that life is my work, my work is my life, and that is the path to, to life, and that's the path everyone was working on. So the mindset was work as hard as you can and as long as you can, build a great career, get ahead, stock a whole bunch of money for your future. And over time, the next generations re realized work is good and work is from God, and we ought to work hard, but it makes a terrible God and that work is not leading us to life. It's just not. We discovered uh, that, what we discovered is that a person might have been a workaholic, and they might have had a great career and a huge portfolio, but struggling relationships. So like I, I talked to guys before that struggled with workaholism for their whole career, and like, they'll say something like, I don't really feel like I know my kids or I feel like my marriage has struggled. So large portfolio, successful portfolio, struggling relationships. So the next generation shifted and they said, no, 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 life doesn't come from work, life comes from family, right? And so we made our kids our entire world. This was my generation. We invested in them, we gave them everything they could ever want or, or, or need and we discovered something really important that family is a good thing. Family is from God, right? This is not anti-family. I love my family so much. It is a good thing. It does not make a great God. And so what we discovered is when family and, and kids become uh, little gods, what we discovered is that we have strong relationships, but within the family, we have an inflated sense of self. That when kids become the whole world, we discovered that they start to feel a little bit entitled because they are the whole world. And so it's like, uh, so the next generation, we're right, we're right now in the middle of another shift on this. It was life is found in work, no life is found in family, now life is found in experiences. That we wanna give ourselves and our kids as many as experiences as we can, we wanna fill them up in that way. And I think what we're gonna discover is this, that when we do that, we have great memories in our family, but a low sense of God and spirituality because a lot of those experiences happen over the weekend. And so we become detached uh, from church, God, and spirituality. And we could talk about that all day long. Those are three examples, but you could talk about image. You could talk about entertainment. You could talk about all sorts of stuff. Anything where our culture is saying, this is life. Pursue this. This is where life comes from. This is where life is found. This is where life is, whether it's the culture or TV or a politician or even certain preachers. And we need to be reminded as we close this series of this truth. Jesus is life. Jesus is life, and he's leading us to life. Um, Jesus uses two illustrations here of how important this is and why this is so urgent. Illustration number one is the illustration of the wolf, the ferocious wolf. He says this wide path that everyone is saying, this is life, this is where it's found, follow this, and everybody's just kind of following that path. He says, it, it is like leading you into the trap of a ferocious wolf. I, I uh, recently uh, watched a documentary on uh, uh, the reintegration of the wolf, and I'm trying to say that, my family makes fun of the way I say the word wolf. So I'm trying to say it, <laughs> do I got it? <laughs> yeah, she's like, yeah, all right, yeah. So. 
But I know, it's, I don't say it right. So, um, and uh, in, 19, in the 1930s, uh, the wolf population in Yellowstone was almost totally extinct. Uh, they, they had been uh, killed off. And so a group uh, from Yellowstone went up to Canada and they trapped uh, several different wolves and they brought them back and they began uh, to grow. And now in Yellowstone, the wolf population is really, really large and it's amazing for the tourists. You can go and you can, at certain times of the year, you can watch the pack travel through Yellowstone National Park. It's awesome for tourists. You know who it's not been awesome for? Elk. Right? The elk aren't super happy about the reintegration of the wolves because the, the wolves hunt the elk. And uh, I was watching this documentary and I watched uh, the wolf hunt the elk. And uh, I, I'm not someone that's real bothered by it. I'm telling you, it was gruesome. Right? I was getting ready to be like, I heart elk. Right? You know, um, I just felt so bad for him. It's a terrible way to go. But um, it was hard to watch. And he says, this false belief about life Jesus is saying, it can be like that, right? When you follow the wrong thing to life, it can actually be destructive, right? And and that's why Jesus cares about this so much. He said, there is a wide path and everyone's following it and everyone's on it and it's not leading to life, it's leading to destruction. And then there's this narrow road that Jesus is on and he's saying, follow me, follow me, follow me. And it's this narrow road as wide as Jesus and it leads to life. And so one of the things that Jesus is teaching here is when you're navigating culture, when you're navigating this world, we have to be wise because it is so easy to just jump into the crowd and follow the wide path. And we're like lemmings, right? We're all just going, this is life, this is life, this is life. And Jesus is behind us going, no, I'm leading you to life. So we have to be wise, we have to be diligent, we have to be smart to make sure that we're not just following the crowd, the wide path, the, the wide path where the, everyone's on saying, this is life and we just buy into it. Yeah, work is life, family's life, experience is life. And Jesus is like, no, I'm leading you to life. Those are all good things, but they're not gonna lead you to life. The next illustration is the illustration of fruit. It says good fruit, uh, good trees produce good fruit and bad trees produce bad fruit. So have you ever had this experience where you have this big, beautiful, like red apple and it's just been sitting there kind of all day and you're like, man, I'm ready to eat that apple and it seemed ripe and it seemed good and, and you took a great big bite of it and it was nasty right? It's dark inside. It's bruised. It tasted like old socks, right? Have you, have you ever had that experience before? Where, not that I know what old socks taste like, of course, right? But I'm guessing, right? That's disappointment. And, and this is part of what Jesus is talking about is that you really examine the wide path, right? That all of culture is on or, or mo- many in the culture are on. Say, this is life. This is life. This is life. Let's just think about it for a minute, Jesus says, and let's examine our culture, would you say our culture is more joyful over the last hundred years, right? Would you say our culture is more at peace? Would you say that our culture is more hopeful? No, no, because the path, it's not just that it leads to destruction, although it can do that. A lot of times it leads to disappointment. And man, I thought this was gonna be life. I thought this was gonna be really great for me and great for my family. And it just leads to disillusionment and, and disappointment, just like that fruit does. So it says, man, examine the culture before you just follow them. And then examine Jesus, 
right? You'll discover that Jesus had this joy, hope, and peace that surpasses understanding. Examine the life of the apostles. They were persecuted and abused, and yet through it all, they had this internal joy and peace that just surpasses understanding. Examine some of the Christians that you know. It's not that Christians never struggle. That is not the promise. But there is hopefully something different about the Christians that you know from the inside. Why? Jesus is leading us to life. And the false prophet, if we just follow along and we don't think and we're not diligent and, and we're not proactive on this, we can just kind of get in line and, and we end up place that, the, a place that uh, leads to disillusionment and, and disappointment when Jesus is leading us to life. So I think over the course of this series, as we get ready to close it out, I think, for me anyway, some of my uh, beliefs about life have been challenged by Jesus. Have, have they been, have you as well? that Jesus says, this is life. And it's like, no, that's not what our culture teaches, or that's not what my neighbor believes, or that's not what the people around me believe. And it's like, I've been challenged by Jesus, and it's just helpful to remind, to remind myself, and maybe to remind you as well, that he is indeed leading us to life. Let me show you a couple of examples. Here's the first one. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Who about it? What? Right? That you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain to the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, your own folks, what are you doing more than others? Even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That challenges us on life. And who is leading us? Jesus, is this really how life works? That I am to love my enemies? And I am to pray for those who persecute me. I don't want to pray for those who persecute me. I, I want to get back at them, right? Jesus is this life, and Jesus stands there in all humility. And he says, yes, I am leading you to life. I am leading you to life. I know what culture says. I know what the people around you are doing. I, I know what Facebook says. I, I know all of that stuff. I'm leading you to life. Will you trust me? Example number two. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy. I gotta say it that way, right? And where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus, is that really, are you sure that's going to lead me to life? Because everybody else in our culture is just accumulating and buying and, and trying to get ahead in that way. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah, it's, and it's all, it's all going to rust. It's all going to be destroyed someday. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. I am leading you to life, Jesus says. Last one. This, these, uh, as a side note, this last one, these words are so um, countercultural to me that coming out of Easter, um, we are doing a whole series um, on... Uh, the idea of being offended. It's called no offense. It came from a conversation Scott and I had in the office a couple months ago where he came in and said, you know, I just see how offended our culture is all the time. Do we as Christians have a right to be offended? Should we be offended as often as we are or ever? And so Scott and I kind of engaged in a word study over it. And um, this, and the word Bible actually talks about this a lot. And this was one of the verses that came up. And uh, we decided we're going to do a whole series coming right out of Easter about whether or not you and I should ever be offended about anything, right? Is that even a Christian response to culture to be offended? And uh, so we're going to, but here's Jesus's words. 
I think this is so countercultural. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when the whole time there's been a plank in yours? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, then you will be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And we are challenged again. That there's this wide path that says accumulate, judge, pay back, live this way. And Jesus says, no, be wise, be diligent, be thoughtful, and understand I am leading you to life. And so we go, I want to end this series right back where we started it. That the whole thing Jesus is teaching here, the way things work in the kingdom, is to hear his words, right? It is one thing to hear his words, to hear them and put them into practice. Here's what Jesus said to close out this passage. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And he's teaching, this is how it works in my kingdom, that there is knowing God and there's doing the will of God. And in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven, we desperately need both. As a matter of fact, in the very next verse, he'll talk about how, uh, Lord, in, in your name, we drove out demons. In your name, we did this. And Jesus says, yeah, but I didn't know you, right? So he's saying that knowing and doing are both super important in the kingdom of God. And so we want to be diligent, of course, to know Jesus, to know him intimately, but then we want to very quickly transition to say, I know him. I know what life looks like in him. So now I'm going to do his will. It is knowing and practicing, knowing and doing. And this is the, the spiritual discipline we all want to engage in, to know him as well as we can know him, but then to carry out his will. And the Bible will have a number of illustrations about this. Um, one illustration is uh, the kingdom illustration. That in the kingdom, there is a king and in, a kingdom, in that kingdom, I'm not the king, right? In this spiritual kingdom. So I recognize, I know that there is a king, that it is a King Jesus, that he is the Lord, he is in charge, he is great. And I want to know the king to the best of my ability. But then there is this humble understanding that he is the king, I am not. So I am going to execute and carry out the will of the king. So it's like, Jesus, I, am wide open. I, I want to be wide open to what you command me to do, how you tell me to live, what you, what you call me to do. So it's rec- in this illustration, it is seeing the king and doing the will of the king. Both are necessary in the kingdom. In another illustration, it's a uh, shepherd and sheep that I am recognizing that the sheep knows the voice of the shepherd. So I'm the sheep in this illustration. Jesus is the shepherd. I know my shepherd. I hear his voice, but then I follow him because I believe he's leading me to still waters. I believe he's leading me to quiet waters. I believe he's leading me to green pastures. He's leading me to life. So in that illustration, it's, all right, I'm the sheep. He's the shepherd. I know the shepherd, and I follow the will of the shepherd. I follow him, right? Um, And in the kingdom illustrations, he's the king. I'm not. I'm a resident of the kingdom, but I know him and I follow him. This is life in the kingdom. This is life with the shepherd. And so we end right where we started with one last illustration. This is the illustration of the house. And it's how Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount. We started the series with it, and now we're going to end it here. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
and the rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, everybody wants to go to the beach, right? Right, the rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. And when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teacher's law. That's the last illustration, right? That I wanna be someone who hears, hears from my king, hears from my shepherd, hears from the builder, and then put his words into practice, where the builder says, no, you'd be better off, you'd be better off to uh, put your house on the rock. You'd be better off to build that house on the rock, right? on a firm foundation. No, 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 all my friends are at the beach. Right? Everybody's going to the beach. The beach is lovely this time of year. I'm going to the beach, right? And you just kind of, this is what everybody's doing. And then the rain comes down, and the winds blow, and, be, and it falls, right? Destruction, destructive, and disillusionment. So I just want to remind you as we close out the series that this is hard. I think it's hard, right? Living in this culture where everybody's doing something and everybody's following a certain path. And it is so hard to not just, this is what, this is what our culture does. This is what everybody does. And to instead be mindful and diligent and thoughtful and to say, what is my king want me to do? What does my shepherd want me to do? What does the builder of my house want me to do? And then to be willing to choose the narrow path instead of the wide one. There are a few things that are harder than this, but by God's grace, we'll do it. And he will lead us to life. And and we'll be able to share that truth with others. We'll be able to rescue other people to to come into a life-saving relationship with Jesus to follow his path to life for them as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for Jesus, and uh, we thank you that he is leading us to life. And uh, we wanna enter into a time of remembrance right now, um, of one of the the greatest moments of of history where, uh, yes, Jesus went to the cross to pay for our sins, but three days later he rose from the dead. And it is a reminder to trust in him. It is a reminder to believe in him. It is a reminder to follow his example. Help us to do it. And I pray right now as we're receiving communion that if there is an area of my life or in the the life of anybody in this room where you're like, you're not walking toward life. You're not being wise. You're not being diligent. This is dangerous. It's gonna, at a minimum, disappoint you. At a maximum, it's gonna lead to destruction. Stop where you are right now and and turn back to the narrow road. I pray if there is any area like that in my life, any area in the life of anybody here listening to me, that you would make us aware of that. And that in true humility, we would repent and turn back to you because you are leading us to life. Help us to do it, Lord. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to receive a communion together right now. And this is a time to remember about how Jesus is leading us to life. Because there came a point in Jesus' ministry where it looked like that was like the end, like over, the end. And he was at that cross and he died and everyone was like, well, it's over. And his, even his followers went back to the upper room and it's done. And then three days later, he rose from the dead. And to me, that is the exclamation point uh, on our faith as a reminder that man, 
I don't care what everybody else says. I don't care what everybody else does. Jesus is gonna lead me to life. And it's countercultural. At times it's hard. At times it's difficult. But choosing that narrow path always leads to life. So we're gonna receive that as a, we're gonna receive it together as a reminder that he's leading us to life today. And uh, we'll pass uh, the trays. You'll find two cups stacked on top of each other. One has some bread representing Jesus' body. The other has some juice representing his blood. And you can just kind of talk to the Lord, maybe pray what I just prayed about. If there's anything in me that's walking away from you right now, make me aware of it right now, Lord, please. If there's any area of my life where I'm not being wise, where I'm not walking with you, where I'm being foolish, make me aware of it, Lord. And then we can have the thoughtfulness to repent and turn back to the narrow path. And then um, you just hold those, pray, and I'll come back up in just a minute, and we'll receive communion together as a church family.